Daniel Kish is the blind man who sees, or if you like, the visually challenged man who sees. Daniel was born with retinoblastoma, which is an aggressive form of cancer that attacks the retina. By the time he was 13 months old, Daniel had had both of his eyes removed in what was a life-saving operation. So he can't see, or so you'd think. What sets Daniel apart from other blind people is his ability to see the world around him using a technique called echolocation. That technique involves generating a sound, typically a click of the tongue, then listening to the echoes of sound that bounce off the surrounding objects, allowing Daniel to paint a picture of the world around him. It's what bats do. So Daniel says, Every surface has its own acoustic signature. I can recognise a tree, for example, because the trunk produces a different echo from the leaves. The hardwood reflects the sound, whereas the leaves reflect and refract too, scattering the sound waves. Everything around me becomes identifiable with a click. It provides me with a 3D image in my mind with depth, character and richness. It brings light into darkness. I can often find my way out of an auditorium quicker than a sighted person because I can identify the exit. Although Daniel was not the first person to use this technique, he's now become an expert in human echolocation and he trains blind children to use the technique. And he says again, Luckily when I was growing up, my parents supported my clicking and encouraged me to have a normal childhood. My friends all rode bikes and I wanted to too. So I taught myself to ride by riding next to a wall and clicking to stay in a straight line. Gradually, I was able to ride to school and to friends' houses on my own using echolocation. Now I can ride along a busy street or go on a trail in the woods. Negotiating rush hour traffic isn't a dream. I'm just glad I can if I want to. I've never hit a pedestrian. I don't ride on the pavement. Cars are excellent echo targets, so I can easily avoid them. I won't say I've never had an accident, but every activity holds an element of risk. (laughs) That's amazing he says that. Daniel Kish is the blind man who sees, not with his eyes, but with his ears. In our Bible reading today, we meet a blind man who also sees, but this man, it's not with his eyes, it's not with his ears, it's with his heart. But before we meet him, it's a surprise to meet Jesus' blind disciples. In Luke's Gospel, at the end of chapter 9, Jesus resolutely, we're told, sets out for Jerusalem. In this sermon series, we've caught up with him along the road in chapter 16. Along the way, as he's come into contact with different people, Jesus has taught more about what, it's, what it is to be one of his people, or one of his followers or disciples. And that's been challenging for us as we've travelled with him. Well, today Jesus is getting much closer to Jerusalem, so he begins to talk about what's going to happen there, something he hasn't really done since just before he set out on this journey. In our Bible reading, you would have noticed that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. That's interesting because a person described like like a Son of Man appears in the Old Testament prophet Daniel's vision as a figure who will rule the world. Yet, Yet the events Jesus predicts here don't really line up with what you'd expect from a powerful ruler. Have a look at verse 32. 
He'll be handed over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. On the third day, he'll rise again. As shocking as the treatment there in verse 32 is, it's not hard to understand, isn't it? I mean, mock, insult, spit, flog, kill. They're simple enough words. They could easily appear on any year four primary school boy's spelling list for the week. So how do you explain verse 34? The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Why can't the disciples understand Jesus' prediction? Why are they blind to what he says? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Is it that a beating consistent with mocking and flogging, which culminates in a murder, is just millions of miles away from what they thought the Son of Man or Christ was going to be like. And especially this is said to come at the hands of the Gentiles. Read in that Romans. One of the Old Testament predictions for the Christ was that he'd rule over the nations and free Israel from her enemy overlords. The disciples, they've seen all the miracles, the, the healing the sick, the deaf and the lame and, and the blind, and they've seen the calming of the storm and the feeding and the 5,000. And so even before they've got to the road with Jesus, they've concluded that he is the Christ, God's promised forever king. He's doing all the things the Christ was going to do. Yet here, Jesus is predicting that he, the Christ, is going to be killed by the foreign overlords, the Romans. This just doesn't fit the expectations of anyone for the Christ. It doesn't fit the disciples' expectations, nor for the common people, not even the Jewish leadership for that matter, which of course is why they could feel they were doing the right thing when they killed him. Yet Jesus has told them that it fits God's expectations. Notice verse 31. Everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. The prophets wrote 700 years ago, for example, Isaiah. That's going to be fulfilled when Jesus goes to Jerusalem. But the disciples can't see it. Are they blind because of their own expectations? can't hear something to the contrary or is it or is it that God has hidden the meaning from them what why would God do that is it maybe because so they won't be frightened off from getting to Jerusalem before they get there because of course they need to be in Jerusalem to be the witnesses of Jesus death so that when Jesus dies and rises again they can say we saw it and they can start telling people about it if maybe if they'd understood what was going to happen to Jesus, they would have turned and rushed along the road in the opposite direction. So maybe it's a divinely imposed blindness here. Whether it's God's influence or all their own, they're blind to the truth. But one thing for sure is that in the last chapter of Luke, they'll certainly understand. I want to show you some slides on the screen from Luke chapter 24 an extract from where Jesus holds a Bible study group. Wouldn't it have been the group to be at, wouldn't it? It would have been great. So in chapter 24, from verse 44, he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. 
Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Notice that Jesus has to use his power to open their minds so they can understand the Old Testament predictions and see how Jesus has fulfilled them. The disciples were blind to the truth on the road to Jerusalem. Those blind disciples are a stark contrast to the blind beggar who sees. As we move closer to Jericho, Jesus is about 25 kilometres from his destination in Jerusalem. When the blind beggar on the roadside is told that it's Jesus who the passing crowd is accompanying, he ignores all the conventions and makes a terrific, loud nuisance of himself, crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, you might be thinking, hey, isn't Jesus the son of Joseph? I think the blind man has a case of mistaken identity. But no, son of David is one of the best, most accurate titles by which to address Jesus. It's a title for the Christ. In the Old Testament, it was King David who God promised a son, a son of his, was going to rule over an everlasting kingdom where there'd be peace and security from enemies and God-given perfect justice. The son of David is more commonly called the Messiah or the Christ. This blind man who can't see Jesus is actually the first person in the whole of the Gospel of Luke since, since the angel spoke to Mary before Jesus' birth. He's the first person to call Jesus the son of David. So we have here this blind beggar who sees who Jesus really is. But that's not the only reason why this blind beggar is useful to us eavesdroppers on the road. Because this man, by his actions, gives us an example of how he should respond to the son of David. Do you notice he's totally dependent on Jesus? He's full of faith in Jesus. We saw it last week, didn't we? Remember last week, Jesus said, unless you receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you'll never enter it. And we, we thought about what that meant. And remember, any parent here would say, well, it's not innocence. No, it's not innocence. The one thing that's true of all little children is their dependence. And notice what the blind man does when people here try and shush him up. He just shouts louder. It's like when you see a family member in the shopping centre and they're walking away from you and you know it might not be socially acceptable but it'll save you a heck of a lot of trouble if you could get them to stop and turn around and walk back towards you as you're going towards them. So you put everything into calling out their name despite what people around you might think. Well, this man had everything to gain if he could get Jesus' attention. He knew what Jesus had, was capable of. He'd heard, no doubt. So, verse 39, while the others told him to be quiet, he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And that faith or dependence on Jesus is rewarded. Verse 42, Jesus says to him, Receive your sight, your faith is has healed you. Notice 
Jesus' words when he grants the beggar the miracle he's pleading for. Your faith has healed you. If I was a man, I would have thought, no, Jesus, you healed me. I knew you could and you did. What Jesus means, of course, is that it's the man's faith in Jesus the Christ, Jesus the son of David, not in himself or luck or magic or diets. It was Jesus who healed man, the object of the man's faith that healed him. Only Jesus, as God's Christ, had the power to heal a blind man with an it word and in an instant. I love that uh, there in verse 43. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. You would, wouldn't you? Isn't Jesus powerful? The blind man who sees that Jesus is the Christ to depend on and praise. It's a great example for us here. He was depending on Jesus for the merciful gift of his sight. And that's a blessing he could have because he lived in that part of the world in the first century AD when Jesus came walking along the road. That blind man saw more clearly than last Sunday's rich ruler. The ruler couldn't see that what he needed more than anything else was to depend on Jesus. That rich ruler last week raised the question of receiving eternal life, of salvation from sin and judgment and living in eternity. Yet he couldn't accept the answer. He simply couldn't depend. So let me ask you then, are you blind to Jesus or do you need him more than anything? Do you depend on him or yourself or your wealth for your future security? It really matters that you get 2020 vision about Jesus and put all your dependence on him so you can receive his mercy. We need to move on from the blind man who saw and the blind rich man of last week to Zacchaeus, the rich man who came to see. Did you notice how the blind man refused to let the obstacles other people put in his way prevent him from getting to be heard by Jesus? I was interested to read that Daniel Kish isn't liked by all the visually challenged community. It's because he's echolocation or flash sonar as he likes to call it can make him seem rather odd in a crowd so he explains if I'm in a noisy place like a concert I don't feel anxious I just increase the volume and my click cuts through the noise I'm very familiar with its sound and I don't feel at all self-conscious if other people hear me although clicking is inordinately helpful blind children aren't encouraged to use it maybe because it's seen as socially inappropriate The worry is that the sound makes you look odd. Instead, there's an unfortunate slant toward dependency rather than encouraging freedom. From that last comment, you can see how he gets others in the blind community offside, don't you? They're slanting their children towards dependency rather than freedom. Daniel would rather have the freedom of movement flash sonar gives him than to blend in with the crowd. Zacchaeus here has nothing to lose 
and everything to gain from performing a rather odd activity to fulfil his desire to see Jesus. He's a chief tax collector, which means he is a social outcast. The tax collectors tended to the Romans to collect the customs taxes on goods. And if it wasn't bad enough to be working for the Romans, then worse still, they used their position to extract more more than the fair tax from people. So they were effectively thieves and traitors. And Jericho, it's a, a major customs centre because it's an important, on an important trade route from Jerusalem up out to the east. So Zacchaeus, as a chief tax collector, is top of the pyramid, very rich, with lots of money and lots of people who despise him. So it won't surprise you that the crowd weren't going to make it easy for the notably short Zacchaeus to see Jesus. Normally, a rich man in their culture would would have got front row position, but not Zacchaeus. And he couldn't see around the crowd as Jesus came along the road. But he hadn't risen to the position of chief tax collector without being resourceful. So Zacchaeus overcomes the obstacle using the sycamore fig tree. That fig tree is enormous tree and he climbs up it and I don't imagine he was very young since he's the chief tax collector so he must have been quite a sight. It was striking last week when the rich ruler met Jesus that Jesus said this in chapter 18 how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, here we have in Zacchaeus another rich man, a very rich man. But we're about to see what happens when a rich man does enter the kingdom of God. Notice that Jesus graciously initiates reaching out to Zacchaeus, just invites himself to dinner or lunch. And I don't know how Jesus knew Zacchaeus' name. Had he overheard someone laughing at him perched up on the tree? Or knowing Jesus, of course, it could have been his supernatural intuition. Remember how he knew all about the past husbands and living lovers of that Samaritan woman back at the well. Anyway, notice that when Jesus invites himself, how Zacchaeus gladly welcomes Jesus to his house. You can imagine Exactly what's described in verse 7 there, the local people muttering to each other as they watch Jesus and short Zacchaeus walking away from the roadside towards the rich man's impressive house. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. And doesn't Jesus know that? What do you think happens between them? Between them heading off to the house and verse 8, we were told that Zacchaeus stands up and makes an amazing pledge. What, what could cause Zacchaeus to pledge to give half of his possessions to, to the poor and pay back four times the amount if he's cheated anybody? And you know, of course, he has. What do you think prompted that radical change in the rich man's heart? I take it that Zacchaeus and Jesus have lunch or dinner and that during that lunch or dinner, Jesus has explained that even for a sinner like Zacchaeus, 
The way into God's kingdom is open. That it won't, though, depend on his riches, but he needs to turn from that and depend on God's mercy. No doubt Zacchaeus has been getting a taste of God's mercy in the way Jesus has already treated him. In their culture, it was almost as bad as committing the sin to eat with the sinner. It implied the person accepted the sinner. Well, what a massive statement Jesus, God's Christ, is making by eating lunch with Zacchaeus. It's so welcoming. He couldn't have done anything else more powerful to accept welcome and invite Zacchaeus to join God's people than to eat lunch with him like he did. And we know that Zacchaeus accepted the invitation. We can tell that by what Zacchaeus says in verse 8, by his costly repentance. This rich man has come to see that depending on God's mercy is worth more than all the money in the world. That, that, that this provides more security than any stash of cash. And so he's put his hope in God. Zacchaeus is now depending on God's hope and grace. And that's what Jesus confirms there in verse 9 of Luke 19. Jesus said, said Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, you remember, Abraham is the great Old Testament example of faith, the original patriarch of the race. He sets the standard for the true Jew. It was Abraham who believed God's promise to give him many descendants when he was too old to have kids and his wife as well. Many descendants who'd live in a land of their own under God's blessing. And remember, he trusted God's promise. He left the security of his home in another country to go to this promised land. And and in Genesis, it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham showed great faith, showed great trust, dependence in God. And a true son of Abraham would be one who imitates his forefather's faith. And Zacchaeus, in now trusting in God and not his money, he's definitely a son of Abraham. Before, he would have been considered certain, one of no doubt that he is outside of Abraham's family, of God's people. But now, he's been invited back and he's believed. He's depending and he's definitely in the family. Like the blind beggar, Zacchaeus, I think, makes us ask ourselves again, do I trust in God and Jesus? You see what Zacchaeus had to turn his back on. Do I depend on God and Jesus alone for my life and salvation? And if your answer is yes, then the last verse of this passage raises one further question. Here in verse 10, Jesus summarises his whole mission on earth. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Jesus was seeking people like Zacchaeus, lost people like Zacchaeus. He's talked to Zacchaeus and helped Zacchaeus to come to a point of repenting and start depending on God rather than the money. In that sense, he saved Zacchaeus. But of course, when Jesus says this, he's not only talking about the calling 
the inviting and the calling of sinners back to God, he's also talking about what he'll soon do in Jerusalem. These words in verse 10 bring us back to our blind disciples again. Remember they were blind to the fact that God's plan for his Christ included Jesus dying in Jerusalem, rejected by the Jewish leadership. Of course, the leaders proved when they did that that they weren't the sons of Abraham they thought they were. Jesus is handed over to the Roman Gentile rulers to be crucified, just as he predicted. Jesus could call tax collectors like Zacchaeus Zacchaeus back and he could give the blind beggar his sight back. But that wasn't ultimately going to save them. It might make them better citizens who could contribute more to their society, but that wasn't going to save them from their sin. It wasn't going to save them from death and judgment. The only way they were going to be fully saved and we were going to be saved from sin was by Jesus dying to take the punishment sin deserves. Only when the sin was paid for could God the Father forgive the sinners like Zacchaeus, the blind man, and you and me. The disciples were blind to that on the road to Jerusalem. But I think today, in the words of a favourite song from Hunters and Collectors, Jesus is saying to us, Do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? Do you see the lost? So let's uh, think about that question under a few headings. Let's start with behaviour. Jesus points himself out for the lost. I'm sure it wasn't always comfortable or fun or relaxed for him to spend time with some of those sinners. They weren't his style of people. But he did it because he loved them. And it certainly wasn't any joy to be rejected and then have the Romans mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him by crucifixion. And even worse, to feel the weight of his father's wrath at sin at the same time. Yet the man who could heal a blind man with a word allows himself to be subject to all that for you. So how are you putting yourself out for the lost then? Are you making time to have non-Christian relationships, not just surrounding yourself with the nice Christian people maybe, though we're not always nice? Or maybe for time helping out in some ministry that's aimed at sharing Jesus with the lost. Are you as concerned for the lost as your King Jesus? Let's continue with our money. It's topical uh, when we've got Zacchaeus in our Bible reading. If it was good enough for Zacchaeus, then us too. Do you think it's sufficient if our charity giving only works to alleviate material needs like sickness, including blindness, or do you see that they also need to look to bring people to Jesus to have their spiritual sickness healed as well? I've come to the conclusion that I'll let the non-Christians of our world give to the secular charities doing good work, the hospitals, the various council foundations, animal welfare um, organisations. I choose to give the limited money I can give to organisations that will seek to alleviate 
both spiritual sickness through sharing Christ as well as material need. So I give to Anglican Aid, I give to BCA, I give to CMS. Let's show that we're concerned about the lost in the way we give and the way we think about our giving. And what about our prayers? Do your prayers reflect that you see the lost like Jesus or are you blind like the disciples? What, what do you pray for your family, for your friends? Is it only for their material well-being, health and work and relationships? I pray for those things too, but leave it at that and you're as blind as the disciples. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost and that means Jesus came to die for people's sins. So don't just pray for health, work and family stress. Plead for God to free people from their spiritual blindness, that they'll turn from their other sources of security and put their trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Unless God, in his grace, opens eyes, they're lost for eternity. Jesus came to seek and save lost so often we don't see our lostness let us pray that we'll see our need and continue to hold fast to Jesus and that we will uh, and that God will help others to see that they need him as well let me pray Father God we thank you for your grace that little taste, reminder of your grace that we saw in the way Jesus sought out Zacchaeus. We thank you so much that in different ways at different times you've caused us to discover all your love for us in Christ. Father, we pray you would show the same mercy to others, to loved ones and friends, to the many in this suburb. We long, Lord, that you would help people to see that Jesus is the saviour they need and the Lord they must follow. Please do that work, Lord, and please help us to continue to see our need to not be blind but to depend on you alone and help us to do that. Amen.